When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, welcome back to the Silver Fortune podcast. I have a uh, returning guest on the show today, um, Steve Penny. Uh, Steve Penny, publisher of the Silver Chartist Report, a weekly newsletter in which he delivers regular updates for investors in the precious metal space with an added focus on uranium. Uh, Steve analyzes the underlying metals as well as the equities in the space. Uh, he's also amassed a, a pretty significant Twitter following as well. I think upwards of 40,000 followers last time I checked. Um, so we have a ton to talk about today. Steve, how are you doing? Good, Matthew. Thank you so much for inviting me back. Uh, Happy New Year and always a pleasure to speak with you. So thanks for having me back. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so so you have a lot of focus, obviously, on the precious metals. You've been a big fan of precious metals for quite a while now. Uh, now, uranium's another, a whole nother ball game that's kind of been thrown in there with precious metals. Um, which isn't super common among precious metals investors. A lot of times they're, they're you know, single-minded, focused on silver and gold and, and maybe the underlying equities. And of course, the reason for that is because you're looking for value, right? You're looking for asymmetry. And, and I want to talk about that today and ask you about that. You know, asymmetry when it comes to investing, it's kind of the mark of investors that are looking for deep value, looking for a large upside with limited downside risk. So, you know, in relation to silver, in relation to gold in 2022, you know, what fundamentals, what technicals um, make you see it as an asset that fits that um, description of, of an asymmetric investment? Sure. And you're talking about silver, correct? For sure. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked. I, I think over the next one to three years or one to five years, somewhere in that time frame, silver is probably the most asymmetric setup of anything. Uh, to include all of the other commodities. Um, it's the only commodity on the planet that I know of that's trading below where it was in 1980 and not just a little bit below, but it's half. It's less than half of where it was 40 years ago. Um, so that, that alone right there just shows you how undervalued it is. And it's a monetary metal. And I think as most of your listeners, I'm sure would agree, we're headed into a currency crisis. The, uh, the national debt and the situation we're in is mathematically impossible to repay. And governments always choose 100% of the time to debase the currency um, in such situations. And we have historical precedent going back millennia. And silver and gold tend to be the prime beneficiaries in this exact environment that we're in now. So, you know, it's a volatile ride. Silver is very volatile. But a lot of people, I think, conflate volatility with risk. And if you're willing to ride through that volatility and you have a, you know, a multi-year time, time horizon, uh, I can't think of a more asymmetric setup than silver. You know, you brought up uh, the, the asymmetry of the U.S. dollar, and that maybe would be the one exception to a, a more asymmetric. Okay. We're not talking about the DXY. We're talking about the dollar. Uh, um, betting against the dollar has been the surest bet in the world for the last you know 100 plus years. It does almost nothing but um, inflate itself away. Uh, despite that, earlier today, we got a bit of a, uh, I guess the markets would interpret it as a bit of a hawkish signal from the Fed. And, and, and their recent release of their, their minutes. 
the Fed, as we know, for the past couple of months has been on a big, a bit of a, of a hawkish path, relatively speaking. Of course, the whole, you know, Overton's window of Fed policy is so far in the dovish direction, historically speaking. But I wanted to hear your thoughts on that. Uh, where do you see Fed policy moving forward, you know, over the coming months, 2022, 2023? Are we seeing, you know, up, upwards of six rate hikes in this hiking cycle? Or is that a lot of baloney? Well, I, I've kind of had an out of consensus view from the beginning when they started talking about taper that I thought they would actually do it, and they are. And I do think that they'll actually raise rates. And I think, uh, you know, it remains to be seen how many they'll get in, but I do think they'll get a few in. But contrary to common belief is that that's not necessarily bearish for the metals um, because the, the metals markets, especially gold, are very forward-looking. So I think they're pricing in these rate hikes now, which is why we've seen the weakness that we have in the last few months. If you go back to December of 2015, that was the first time the Fed had raised rates in many years. Well, within a few days, that marked the, the low for the metals. $1,045 in gold was December something of 2015, right after the first rate hike. Um, it's, so, you know, I don't view that as bearish at all if, if they do raise rates. What, what, do, what does matter is real interest rates. And if they were to get a really aggressive and get ahead of the curve, like Paul Volcker, Volcker did in the 80s, yeah, that would be problematic. But there's no way they can do that. So I think inflation is going to continue to be higher than any nominal uh, interest rate. Uh, so inflation, of course, has been on the minds of, of a lot of people lately. You know, for a long time, it was people that focused on things like monetary fiscal policy saying, hey, you can't keep interest rates at zero forever. You can't print trillions of dollars. You can't uh, run a, a massive trade deficit. You can't uh, run up trillions of dollars of debt at the corporate, the consumer, at the, at the government level without having, you know, some side effect of that, uh, namely inflation. And it feels sort of like inflationists are finally have been vindicated in the last 12 months. Uh, it's, it's no longer just been something that we talk about, something mainstream media, something Main Street talks about, something Wall Street talks about. Um, we've finally seen those big CPI numbers that, that a lot of us have been waiting for. Uh, you know, in many ways, silver is seen as a hedge against inflation. You ask, you know, any you know, average Joe why they're invested in silver, and they say it's because it's a hedge. That's part of the reasoning behind it. Um, of course, you know, we all sort of expect silver to maintain its value in an inflationary environment. Um, but if we do end up seeing secular inflation, I'm not even talking hyperinflation, but just secular long-term high-level inflation, high single digits, low double digits, uh, are we talking preservation of value or are we talking about something more than just matching inflation in terms of the valuation of silver? Yeah, I, th I think the mindset when you own physical metal should be preservation of purchasing power, or preservation of capital. However, I, I do think that silver is going to increase your purchasing power in the coming years. When I buy physical gold, all I'm doing is I just want to preserve that purchasing power. Um, but when I buy silver, I, I do have some expectation or uh, a high level of expectation that my purchasing power is going to increase. But really, when I want to, um, you know, speculate for capital appreciation, that, that's where I go to the mining stocks. So, so in, in terms of CPI, I remember talking to you, oh gosh, probably upwards of six months ago when we were talking about, it was after the first few uh, higher than expected CPI numbers had come out and we're talking about, you know, what if this goes on for another year? What if this goes on for another year and a half? I, I want to get some of your thoughts on, on CPI. You know, I know that your, your, special, your specialty is, is technicals and, and, and some focus on obviously fundamentals. 
Um, but, but kind of in the macro space, since CPI, since inflation is on the mind of so many investors, where do you see it heading in 2022? Um, well, I, th- I put it this way. I, th- often when you have very intelligent analysts with opposing viewpoints, they can often both be right, but in differing timeframes. So like, for example, you have Jim Rickards who sees disinflation over the short term or even deflation where you got the Peter Schiff's of the world saying, oh, inflation, always inflation. Well, I think it, there's no doubt that the trend is going to be towards higher inflation, but we're going to see deflationary impulses that are short-lived. That's, that's my baseline expectation. So the, the rate of change may slow down. They call that disinflation where inflation is, we're still having more inflation. It just maybe the pace slows down a little bit. So that, that, that's what I see in uh, 2022. And of course, the, the big thing to keep in mind for, for investors, for consumers is what you brought up earlier. Real rates are still deeply, deeply negative. Maybe the most, you know, for all that, what's the craziest thing about this is I remember for many years when, you know, mostly during the Yellen, uh, when, when Yellen was, was Fed chair, there was all this talk about 0% interest rates. It's never been done before in human history. Um, especially for as long as they were kept at zero. And, and yet inflation, you know, the official CPI numbers were 1%, 2%, you know, in that ballpark. And now we're talking about CPI 5 6 7%. And uh, uh, the Fed funds rate is still zero. Um, the 10-year is, is not much higher than that. I, I haven't checked it recently. Uh, somewhere in, you know, north of maybe 2%, I'm guessing. Yep, right, right about there. Right around 2%. Okay. I, I can't think of a time in history that real rates have been more negative on, on you know, uh, with, with maybe, I can't think of any exceptions. And that's kind of the crazy thing for investors, for savers. There's just no incentive to, to go into low interest um, investments or savings. You know, how do you see that playing into precious metals in the future? There's always talk about interest rates and how that influences not only the dollar, but gold and silver. But, but how about real rates? How do you see that playing out when maybe investors start to realize that, you know, these negative 3%, negative 4% real rate is, is not transitory? Yep, exactly. And I think that's probably the biggest driver for precious metals is real rates. And that, that'll be probably the, the biggest sell signal if we ever do see positive real rates, which I think is probably years off if we, if we even see it at all. But, you know, a lot of the big question I think a lot of investors are asking themselves, I, I've thought about this myself, is, you know, we're finally seeing public acknowledgement of inflation. It's being reflected in the CPI, yet inflation hedges such as gold and silver perform so poorly. And people say, what's going on? Well, I think right now there's still a belief that the Fed can fight it. So, th- so you would get, we, we recently in the last few months, you'd see, um, you know, high inflation number come out and then gold gets hit. Well, I think because people say, oh, well, now the Fed's going to fight it aggressively. So uh, the big inflection point is going to be when people realize they're not going to fight it. They're going to stay behind the curve. They may throw a couple of nominal rate hikes in there, but they're going to be behind the curve. And when the general market participants realize that, that, that's when we see the next big upleg in the metals is how I see it. Yeah, in many ways, you know, it's viewed that, that the Fed and their most powerful weapons are, are interest rate policy and and, uh, and quantitative easing or quantitative tightening. Uh, and yet, I, I completely agree because what they're forecasting right now is, is six, what, six hikes, I think, over the next two years. That's kind of the middle, middle of the road of their, of their dot plot. Um, and that's obviously not going to be, that's 1.5% Fed funds rate. Uh, that's not going to be enough to, to, uh, to handle 
inflation north of you know five percent. Um, I think a lot of it is is bluster, it's talk, and that's truly maybe one of the Fed's most important tools is is trying to control that narrative. And that's what I've been saying for a, for a long time that so much of this comes down to narrative. But where the rubber meets the road is is you know we can talk all about narrative and and what the market believes is going to happen, what their perception is of how trends raise inflation, how successful will the Fed be in, in bringing inflation under control, but at the end of the day, if you remove liquidity from the markets uh, through through tapering and, and maybe even eventually quantitative tightening, if you uh, remove liquidity and support for the markets by by raising interest rates by you know seventy five basis points in a year, uh, it doesn't matter what the narrative is. You know the market feels that in a re- very real sense. The market is no matter what you know with with just a few drawdowns over the past you know ten years. Um, the market has mostly been predicated on on credit growth and, and liquidity growth. Yep, 100%. The whole system is reliant on credit and debt and an ever-increasing debt. It, not only if, if credit stops expanding, you know, everything kind of implodes. We saw a little bit of credit contraction in 2008, and look what happened. <laughs> I mean, if you look at a long-term chart of credit growth and it's just this little blip and, you know, everything almost imploded. Um, and here's something for, for people to think about, too, with the raising interest rates. The national debt debt is rapidly approaching $30 trillion. We're, let's just call it $30 trillion for easy math. Every 1% rise in interest rates equals $300 billion of interest payments on that national debt. Um, so it's, it's, it's mathematically impossible for the government to remain solvent if rates rose to, say, 5%. 5% of $30 trillion would be $1.5 trillion in interest payments. And they take in, um, I don't know exactly, but I think it's around 35 or $4 trillion in federal tax receipts. So that'd be a huge portion of federal tax receipts going just to pay the interest on the debt. Forget about the military and pensions and social security and all these other things. Um, so, you know, someone once asked me, you know, what's a four letter word for why silver and gold are likely to, um, you know, go up. And they, I said, what? And they said math. Um, so it's just a big math problem with no um, good solution. Yeah. You know, the idea of the federal reserve um, tightening, uh, both in, in terms of the taper, but also uh, expecting to raise rates later this year. Um, that To some, that might make sense. If, if you look over the longer period of human history, or at least the Fed history, uh, with inflation as high as it is right now, that shouldn't be unexpected that they're doing it. And yet it feels so um, like, like it's, it's, it's not, like it's destined to fail in essence. And I wonder, and this is just me spouting some of my own thoughts, my own opinions on it, but I wonder if, if even if we're looking at the Fed minutes from today, which were from you know the middle of December, I wonder how much of this tightening was predicated on maybe a little bit more in the terms of, of fiscal support. Uh, the the big thing that changed between you know middle of December and now has been that you know Biden's you know the Build Back Better plan, uh, which included a lot of stimulus, a lot in the way of stimulus, both infrastructure and um, and, and quite a few other um, parts of that as well. Trillions of dollars of spending. Um, that's you know. That's on hold. I, I won't call it dead in the water, but it's certainly on hold um, right now. And, and I wonder, you know, maybe the Fed, maybe some way, somehow could get close to their to their goals in terms of tightening over the next year or two with a heck of a lot of, of fiscal support. But but if you take that out, if you if you don't have the political will to do that, it just makes me wonder how far they're actually going to make it in, in terms of, of this path that they've laid out for themselves. Yeah, I, I agree 100 percent. And um you know, another thing for people to think about too is um, with, with regard to taper. So that if they step back from buying these treasuries, who's going to buy them? 
because the, the government's still going to spend into oblivion. Is China going to continue to support, um, to, to lend, to lend their hard earned money to a insolvent institution? Um, who, who's going to lend the money if, if it's not the fed? Um, and I think the simple answer to that is the fed's going to step back in at some point. We all know that just a matter of when. Yeah, absolutely. And, and kind of the, the, the flip side of that as well is this notion that once the fed has stopped quantitative easing, finished their taper, that uh, their participation in the bond market is is over with, which isn't true at all. Um, they're set to, uh, you know, if, if they continue on their current path, finishing tapering up in the, you know, the, maybe the end of the first quarter of this year, uh, their balance sheet is going to be, uh, I think, north of $9 trillion, which is going to be effectively double of what it was at its peak um, before the last uh, quanti- round of quantitative tightening. And that has... The effective, I, I think two things. I mean, first, they're holding back $9 trillion worth of debt from the economy, uh, primarily uh, government bonds, bills, and, and mortgage-backed securities. Um, but also as those, as those uh, securities uh, mature, they're reinvesting those funds back into the market. I mean, that's, that's not as much support as what they're doing right now because they're doing all of that plus quantitative easing. But that's, um, that's still, again, in terms of the Overton window of, of monetary policy, that's incredibly dovish. Yeah, I, I love your use of that phrase, Overton window, because <laughs> well, not, not a lot of people have, have uh, heard of that. But, you know, for those who haven't, it's just basically like this. It's the 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 what people accept as normal kind of shifts. They gradually shift it. You know, <laughs> is that that's what you mean? Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And I think most of the time it gets referred to in, in the political sense in terms of uh, political policy or, or societal terms. Um, and, and there's a thousand and one examples we could give and, and each of them would be as controversial as the next because, you know, that's, that's the way YouTube is. But, uh, but, but in terms of Fed policy, I find a lot fewer people get upset when we talk Fed politics compared to national politics. I think almost, almost everybody's on the same page here mm-hmm. um, in terms of Fed policy. But, uh, you know, sort of the elephant in the room here. Okay, so we're talking about precious metals. We're talking about silver. We've been talking about silver a, a lot. I'm not talking about just here, but, but over the past year plus, uh, and, and 2020 was an exciting year for silver. And and the first half of 2021 was incredibly exciting. We had the, you know, the whole silver squeeze movement. We had, um, a whole lot of buying, for example, in the PSLV and, and they were stacking silver in a big way. Uh, and it sort of fizzled out and, and simultaneously the price of silver just didn't, show the momentum we, we, we wanted to see in it, the, the attention in the space, the excitement in the space sort of faded. I think there's a lot of stackers. There's a lot of silver investors here today, uh, more than there were at the beginning of, of 2021. But the excitement just isn't what it used to be. And, and that's sort of reflected to some extent in the price action. Um, I, I want to get your thoughts on that in terms of the price of silver, but also silver equities, you know, in terms of valuations, where are we at right now at the beginning of 2022 compared to, let's say, um, you know, the bottom in 2020 or, or, you know, pre 2019 when, when silver and gold started to take off during that time period. Yeah. Um, I like to look at ratios like the silver ETFs, SILJ, SIL relative to silver or gold versus GDX. And, you know, we're not where we were in March of 2020. That, that was historic. I mean, the equities were so undervalued relative to the metals. Um, I'm not sure we'll ever see that again. Um, but if you zoom out to you know multi-decade time frame, yeah, the the mining stocks are presenting a tremendous value proposition here relative to the metals themselves, and the metals are undervalued relative to almost everything. So, like I said, with the one to three year time horizon, yeah, the, the mining stocks present very compelling entry points here. 
Although, you know, downside risk remains. Things are volatile in the short term. Um, but yeah, if you right. that one for your time frame. And, and, you know, looking back, that's something I've been talking about lately, this idea of, of narratives. Even if we know eventually, you know, let's say the Fed is going to cave in, we eventually know um, uh, uh, that, that the narrative about that is going to shift in, in favor of precious metals. It uh, doesn't mean it can't go further in this direction. It doesn't mean we should rule out um, some of the downside risk that still exists in, in the equities and the underlying metals. Yeah, exactly. Um, if, if, if you like that, I, I can show um, a, a chart or two of yeah, some of these ratios. Yeah, if, if that works for you. Um, I'll, I'll go ahead and pull it up. This, this one here is uh, SILJ versus silver. So SILJ is the, the junior silver mining ETF. Granted, they're mostly, you know, mid cap names. They're not so much juniors, but, you know, I, you can see this ratio chart right here. And um, you know, this shows silver miners overvalued relative to silver. Um, and, you know, you can see we're, we're, we're pretty low in this ratio. So silver miners are, are cheap relative to the metal itself. And you can do the same thing with um, like GDX versus gold. I'll pull up a chart here too. This one's not annotated or anything. Oh, actually it is. Yeah. I haven't looked at this one in a little bit. You can see back to, <laughs> back to where we were in 2006, you know, mining stocks were overvalued relative to the metal. And look where we are now. So mining stocks are cheap relative to gold and silver. You know, off there, before we, we, we uh, start recording here, we're talking about some other ratios. Maybe you can keep that screen up. And oh, sure. You're talking some about uh, you know, gold to silver ratio. Obviously, it gets a lot of attention. But we're talking about the, the silver to Dow ratio, the gold to Dow ratio, and, and some of the value that's uh, presented in those uh, currently. Yeah, exactly. Um, let me do a Dow or a silver versus Dow chart. <clears throat> and th this one is zoomed in. So this is a weekly chart that goes back to 2018. And for those who aren't familiar with technical analysis, you know, I, I like to keep it very simple, just simple patterns that are easily recognizable. And one of my favorite patterns is a triangle pattern. So it kind of shows a battle between bulls and bears. And as you reach the apex of that triangle, you typically get a sharp move one way or the other as you know, one side wins. And uh, you can see we're approaching this apex right here of silver versus Dow. So if we get an upside breakout here, that would mean silver begins to outperform the Dow Jones. And if you uh, zoom out to a longer term chart here of the silver versus Dow or of silver versus the Dow, you go to a log chart so you can actually see it. So you can see just how undervalued silver is relative to general equities when you zoom out to like, you know, this goes back decades. This is the peak here in 1980. Um, now, if we return to that 1980 peak, I'm almost embarrassed to say this because it sounds ridiculous, but it's, this is just history. You can see it right here in the chart. That, that would mean silver outperforms the Dow Jones by over a factor of 50 um, if we return to that ratio, which I, I do think is going to happen over the next uh, you know, handful of years. One of the numbers you brought up in relation to that is the, the gold to Dow ratio, uh, one to one. Maybe you can bring up that chart and talk about it a bit. Absolutely. Yeah, here's, here's a longer term chart of the gold to Dow ratio. This goes back to 1980. And as your listeners pro probably are familiar with or heard before, often bull markets peak at a one-to-one -one ratio. So in 1980, the Dow Jones bottomed at 850 and gold peaked at right about 850. It's a one-to-one -one ratio. A similar thing happened back in the 30s. So I, I think it's reasonable to expect that to happen again in the fullness of time. And you can see it, this pattern here that goes, um, or this chart that goes back to 1980. Um, we're, we're approaching the apex of another larger triangle. We just talked about triangles. You've also got this bullish arc pattern. 
So all that to say, I think uh, gold is going to begin to outperform general equities um, over the short to intermediate term here. I'm looking for that to happen this year in 2022. And if and when it does, that's going to attract the attention of those generalist investors who, you know, they, they just care about performance. And if they start to see something moving or outperforming, that it, that that brings them in. Um, so that that's one thing I'm looking for in 2022. I think an important backdrop to all of this is uh, what many have expected to be a, a, a prolonged um, bull market or secular bull market in commodities more broadly, not just precious metals, but, but when you're talking about um, investors, mm-hmm. generalists, finding interest or finding value in silver or gold, uh, it's going to be the backdrop of them probably also finding similar value in uh, energy or, or food commodities or a whole lot of other metals. Um, and, and, and that also can explain some of that, that rotation that you're talking about. If we're talking about a 50 per or a 50 time, uh, um, um, outperformance uh, silver relative to to the Dow. Uh, I'm not calling for a, a big crash in the Dow or something like that, but that can that can explain part of that that rotation and part of that outperformance. That if we're looking at a five year, maybe you can talk more about about you know long term expectations here. But if we're talking about a five ten plus year um, kind of bull market that's going to be experiencing a lot of different commodities and natural resources, uh, then that that can kind of explain that big swing. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, the g- generalists point to gold, a lot of them anyway, and say, well, it makes a terrible investment over if you hold it over the long term. And there's truth to that. I mean, if you're just buying uh, over the last handful of decades, you know, stocks have outperformed uh, gold. But there are brief periods in, in the longer term cycles where the metals just, you know, they're very cyclical, right? Where they just outperform by a wide margin and then it reverts back. So, you know, you have to have an exit strategy too. Um, you know, um, I, I, I will always hold current policy, but where I'm looking to gain purchasing power, you have to have an exit strategy there because the, these are not, you know, the, they're volatile investments. And, uh, you know, I think we're a long way from the peak, but there's going to come a time to sell. There's a time to buy and a time to sell. And I think right now is the time to buy. Hey Steve, would you mind would you mind checking your audio? It just kind of got real quiet there. Just want to make sure your mic's there. Yeah, sorry about that. How's that? There we go. There we go. I'll cut that out. That's fine. Okay. <laughs> um. Okay, so I don't remember where I lost you there. About halfway through that. Okay. Um. How about I just start it over? That's totally fine. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that that's such a good point, and a lot of people, you know. I, I like I plan to hold some physical metal for the long term, just as an insurance policy. I want to give it to my children and hopefully they give it to their children's children and so on. But for, for the portion of my precious metals portfolio that I'm looking to, you know, gain purchasing power with, um, you have to keep in mind these are very cyclical investments and you have to have an exit strategy because oftentimes in these bull markets, they they come down just as fast as they rose. So um I'm not sure if that answers your question, but I think it, it, it's, it's a point to worth making to have an exit strategy. Yeah. And, and you're also bringing up here the platinum versus silver ratio. And, and maybe you can kind of uh, expand on that a little bit in terms of, of uh, we're again, talking off the air, we're talking about speculation versus, you know, preservation uh, and, and 
maybe some of the value in, in platinum right now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so whenever I talk about platinum, I like to give the, you know, this, make the statement ahead of time that I'm not saying platinum is going to do better than silver because on a risk, risk adjusted return, I, we're headed into a currency crisis and silver is my preferred way to invest in this environment. However, platinum is undervalued on a ratio basis, even relative to silver. Uh, I don't know that there's another metal more hated than platinum, um, with the exception of maybe silver. Uh, but if but if we get back to this ratio where we were at in 2002, that, that would see platinum outperform even silver by a factor of five. And when I first pulled up this ratio, I was really stunned to see that. Um, so, you know, I, I think platinum is worth considering as a speculation over the next few years. Uh, that's personally what I'm doing. I'm, I'm, I want to get, uh, you know, about 10, 20% of my portfolio in, in physical platinum and a few platinum mining stocks. So, so kind of continuing to switch gears away from just precious metals. Uh, I, I want to talk about uranium. Uranium is the uranium market right now is there's a lot going on. 2021 was a crazy year for, for a lot of people that had been waiting and waiting in the uranium space uh, a lot longer than, than I have been, or even you. And, and they were finally sort of rewarded for, for their patients. And, and I wanted to, I wanted to give you a chance to kind of talk about some of the recent uh, big news items. Obviously, there's been big price movements that we can talk about as well in the price of uranium and the, the, the equities. Um, but, but talk a little bit about some of the, the big news in the space that has been moving the markets in that manner. Yeah, I've been in uranium for a few years now, and it's been by far the best performing investment um, class for the, for the last year and a half or so for, for me. Um, so what, what I love about uranium, for those who are maybe are unfamiliar, is that it's a pure supply-demand story. You know, we're headed into a major structural supply deficit where the world is uh, embracing nuclear as a clean energy uh, baseload power source. And uh, it's being embraced by both sides of the political aisle, which I don't think we've ever seen before. And the, the bottom line is the price of uranium is going to have to rise in order to incentivize the new production that's needed to fuel all of these reactors that are coming online. Uh, China's talking about just this massive build out of nuclear reactors. And uh, I think the numbers for 2022, the forecasts are about a, a 200 million pound demand and 150 million pounds of supply. Well, that leaves you a 50 million pound supply deficit. And that doesn't include the, you know, the financial players that are starting to buy pounds to include this Sprott, Sprott Physical Uranium Trust. So, um, you know, I continue to be very bullish on uranium we've pulled back about 30, 35% from the peak in the last few months, right to a rising 200 day moving average. And, you know, we use some technical analysis to take profits right near the top. Um, you know, there's obviously some luck involved there. If you nail the exact top, I don't, I don't want to say, Hey, we, we can nail the exact top. That's not what we do, but we, we did take some off the table there. And then as we pulled back to this 200 day moving average, I think we're seeing some nice attractive entry points for the sector. So uh, talking about supply and demand and some of the fundamentals that are, that are underlying the metal uh, right now, it, this just comes to mind. There's a lot of similarities um, between uranium and silver. And even if we go back uh, many decades, silver, for example, um, the price of silver was suppressed. And I'm not talking about manipulation. That's a whole other topic. But, but the price of silver was sort of artificially suppressed for many decades because um, the U.S. government and, and many, many governments around the world had these massive stocks of physical silver uh, in their reserves um, or in some cases in circulation that they took out of circulation. And 
sold onto the market, right? Uh, physical silver is not widely held by governments as far as we know, um, with a few exceptions and most of that's just for, for minting purposes. We're talking about hundreds of millions of ounces that the US and other governments had in circulation that they took out of circulation, melted down and sold onto the market. And, and there's certain a certainly a bit of, of similarity between that and the uranium market with the, the uh, long time uh, megatons to megawatts program in which you know bombs, uranium from bombs was, was taken and, and essentially used as, as fuel. Um, both of those programs, silver and uranium have now come to an end. Both metals saw a, a pretty, pretty significant bull market in uh, the 2000s kind of culminating in, I think uranium is also for 2011, same time period, correct? Um, both had a, a long protracted bear market. Um, now, of course, the, the deficit in the silver market is maybe not as great as it is in the uranium market today. Um, depending on what numbers you're using and, and how you're figuring in things like, like exchanges and, and SLV and PSLV and whatnot in regards to silver. But, but the, there's a lot of similarities in these metals. And, and, and you know, it, it's, it's just interesting to me and, and I wanted to get your thoughts more on sort of that supply demand um, uh, discrepancy in the uranium space, because you're right, China is is looking to build a lot of reactors. The EU recently changed some of their um, regulations in terms of how they classify nuclear energy as, as a green energy, actually, which is crazy uh, in the midst of, of Germany recently having just shut down two of their reactors in, in the middle of, of their own energy crunch. The EU is actually moving um, to, towards a, a pro-nuclear stance. Um, China is, is, you know, light years ahead of them and, and, and have already built and continue to build a lot. But, but we're, already, we're not talking a couple of years in the future. We're already in a supply deficit, are we not? We are. And, and you, you bring up the point of uh, secondary supply held by governments. And uranium is a very opaque market, and it's hard to get d hard data on just how much available supply there is. Uh, that said... We see um, from the, these institutions and entities that are accumulating pounds that it's not easy for them to secure those pounds. We saw mining companies um, just take trying to secure pounds last year, late 2020. We see the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust. It's it's not available readily available for them to just go get it and have it you know right now. It's they're having delays and they're having to buy uh, you know uh, supply from future uh, production. So that, that's an indication that the market is very tight. And um, I think it's going to get even tighter. So, so you brought up the, the Sprout Uranium Trust, and, and some of my followers are going to be familiar with that. Uh, but maybe you could, more likely, they're going to be familiar with the Sprout Physical Silver Trust. Maybe you could go into a little bit of detail about maybe some of the differences in terms of, of, of how those inventories of, uh, of uranium fluctuate, or in, in essence, that they don't go down the way that the, the, the trust is structured. And and also the massive impact that's had on the uranium market, you know, in relation to the, to the physical silver trust. Yeah. And so I, I'll put the caveat out there that I'm not an expert on the inner workings of these trusts and the prospectus and all that. I mean, I've, I've glanced at those things, but one thing that is unique, I think you just mentioned it, is that the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust, it's, it, it's not like where if people are selling shares that they sell uranium back into the market. Um, in theory, it's once it's once they have it, they have it, and there's no, uh, you know, case where they're going to sell it back into the market. I mean, could that change down the road? Maybe, um, but right now, once it goes in, there's there's not a way for it to come back out. So it just takes it up, takes that supply off. Yeah, and it's really an interesting market mechanic. And and some have wondered, you know, how is this gonna, how is this going to, 
play out in, let's say, a bear market in the future. That's that's a long ways down the road. Uh, but but uh, in in the meantime, essentially, you know, for people that are trading these shares, much like they would trade any other, you know, uh, ETF or exchange traded product, you can sell out of it. The difference is is that the um, the the underlying asset, the the, the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust, simply just trades at a as a at a premium or at a discount relative to the uh, to the underlying uranium that's held in the trust. Correct. Yep, that, that's exactly right. And by the way, um, this 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 uh, this fund is relatively new. It's less than a year old, um, and you know the the market was already tight before this before Sprott, uh, Sprott came along, and th- this just. It's like the more research you do into the uranium sector, it's it's almost hard to just not become more and more bullish. Um, that, that said, it's very volatile. You know, I, I put about you know it's become about thirty percent of my overall portfolio. But you know, I, I don't put all all of my money into uranium, even though I'm, I'm wildly bullish on it. Yeah, and I think already since it's been created, I think it already holds upwards of twenty twenty one million pounds, um, somewhere in that ballpark. Maybe you can correct. Yeah, I, I want to say 25, but I, I, I could be wrong. I, I don't I don't recall exactly. And 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 the real interesting difference between this and the Sprott Physical Trust is that, like you said, it's a tight market. Silver is a tight market, but silver is um, in, in many respects, oftentimes readily available. There's a large amount of silver that's being held by investors in vaults and whatnot. And that's not the case for uranium. Uranium is held by um, by utilities, in some cases, miners, and in rare cases, uh, you know, governments. Yeah, China, for example, I think is is working on building a pretty significant stockpile or, or adding to what they have now. But otherwise, there's not, you know, people don't just sell uranium that's sitting in their, in their closet that they've been holding on to for many years. Um, and so when you have a buyer come into the market and buy up a massive proportion of yearly production off of the, uh, off of the spot market that well, that's how, talk about the price. Talk about the uranium price and kind of some of the influence that that's had in the past six months. Sure. We, we, um, the uranium price bottomed in 2016 around $18 a pound. And by the way, the, the break-even price, the, the incentive price that most of these mining companies, this is broadly speaking, the, the price they need to turn on production again is you know north of 50, 50, let's call it 55 bucks. In reality, a lot of these companies have said 65, but let's just call it 55. So down to 18, uh, no one's producing uranium. That was back in 2016. Well, we r- rallied up to about $30, consolidated there. And then in a short period of time, once the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust became a thing, we, we went from uh, low 30s up to just over $50 in a very short period of time. So now that's initial resistance, $50 uranium. But from a technical perspective, once we get through that previous high at $50.80, um, for me, the next technical target is $73 uranium. And th- there's a, a lot of money to be made in these equities between, you know, where we are now, call it $45 uranium and $73 uranium, uh, especially considering how small the market is. There's globally, there's less than 70 pure play uranium mining companies um, in the world. And most of them are very small market cap. So when, when institutional money or capital flows start to come into the sector, I mean, you see explosive moves. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of those th- same things are very uh, true for silver as well. But uranium is e- even smaller market than silver. Yeah. And, and you know, 40, 45 to, to 73, that amount might sound like a pretty significant move. But again, if you if you compare it to, you know, the, the pre-Fukushima highs in the uranium space, there's still a long ways for this to rip before it's even taken out those highs from, from 2010, 2011. 
yeah, I think it was 2007 or eight that it got to like $135 a pound. Um, I think 138 or something like that to be exact. Um, but you know, it only stayed there. It was, it was only above a hundred dollars for a very short period of time. So, you know, you gotta be nimble. Like that highlights again, <laughs> having that uh, exit strategy. And just like I scale in on weakness, you know, I'm going to be scaling out slowly into strength. Um, and I think it's very, it's very possible we get back to those numbers again. So, so we've been talking a lot about equities and equities, obviously, uh, they give you many ways leverage, um, leverage without actual leverage over a given um, commodity, right? In this case, silver, gold, uranium, uh, any upside is going to be experienced to a greater extent in the equity versus the underlying metal. One thing that that is on my mind, and I think is on a lot of other investors' minds, is a correction or a major bear market in the broader equity space. I'm talking hypothetically, let's say the Fed um, continues in, in terms of their, uh, we just call it a policy error. They, they hike one too many times, they, they tighten too much. And, and we end up in a situation, not unlike, I think it was Christmas of, of 2018 um, and a couple other time periods in just the last five years where, where the markets basically screamed policy error. You're tightening too fast. We get a 10%. 20% drop pretty quickly. And, and in the past, when that's happened, uh, for a different reason, but certainly 2020 is another a good example. You see uranium miners, you see silver and gold miners just drop like a rock uh, at a much faster pace than, than the broader equities, than the Dow or the S&P or the NASDAQ. I want to get your thoughts on that. Um, is this something you are anticipating? Do you see it as, I mean, some people are, are fearing that, some people are anticipating that for, as, a, as a buying opportunity. Yep, that's, that's probably one of the biggest, as a newsletter writer, that's one of the biggest questions we get asked all the time, at least once a week. Someone, hey, what about the next stock market crash? So a cu- couple general thoughts there is, yes, there's going to be another stock market crash at some point. Uh, now, timing that event has been uh, extremely difficult. Um, so I think rather than trying to predict when it happens, more important is having a strategy to handle how you're going, you know, a strategy for when it happens. So like personally, here's what I do is, um, I don't use stop losses on my long-term, um, account, but I have a separate dedicated trading account where every time I place a trade, I put a stop loss and that's 10% of my portfolio. So if we do see a liquidity event, um, that becomes cash and that's the cash available I have to scoop up bargains. So that's my personal strategy, but I, th- I think it's important to have one. Um, and then another thought is the previous times when we've had these major stock market sell-offs like 2008, 2020, the metals and general equities had been rising together. So they fell together. It's kind of the opposite this time where the metals have trended lower for the last you know 12 plus months where equities have just gone like this. So I'm sure the equities, uh, the precious metal sector and our mining stocks will get hit if we do see a sharp sell-off. I just don't think it would be to the extent that we've seen in those previous times that you mentioned. Um, so th- those are my thoughts. Yeah. And, and, and I, you know, the, the idea of the Powell put or whatever you want to call it, the Federal Reserve and, and of course, U.S. government um, in the past, they have stepped in in those instances. You know, uh, we'll, we'll get that 10 percent, 15 percent, 20 plus percent drop sometimes. Um, but I'm kind of with you that, that, that that's some people talk about an 80% drop in the stock market or something like that. And maybe, maybe one day, but, but I, I struggle to envision something like that happening pre, uh, maybe not hyperinflation, but pre high, high levels of inflation. I think we have a long ways to go before, um, sentiment would change, um, that much in that regard. Um, so that's, that's- 
yeah, you can, if you had something to say. Oh, well, but yeah, it, it, it's hard to imagine an 80% drop in nominal terms, but in, in real terms, I could easily see that. Um, you know, we're so yeah. used to measuring things in dollars, but as that becomes an increasingly less reliable unit of account, um, you know, I like to measure it. That's why I like ratios. So Dow gold ratio, I could see that going down by 80% for, for sure. Um, yeah, another, but- thought, uh, another thought, another thought experiment is if the Dow doubles, but everything else quadruples, did the Dow double or did, did it go down by half? You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, people like to, to take examples of, let's say that the Venezuelan stock market and how it behaved during a hyperinflationary time period, you know, early on, it did very well um, in, in real terms and not just in nominal terms mm-hmm. um, afterwards that, you know, eventually that was no longer the case. But even if you're just using that as a comparison, let's say, you know, not even hyperinflation, let's say 10%, 15% year over year inflation for a period of, you know, a couple of years, you know, how does, how does the U.S. equities market behave in that environment? And I think it's an apples to oranges comparison. You're comparing a small um, emerging market market to uh, uh, the U.S. stock market, which for years has benefited from a huge amount of inflows, um, partly related to, to, the, to the value of, of the underlying you know, world reserve currency and the amount of use that it has in trade and forex reserves and whatnot. And, and I don't know, I mean, in a high inflationary environment, how much of that is going to be you know, here to say how much of that demand for the U.S. stock market is going to evaporate and how much of a hit is the U.S. economy going to take in a, in a period of high inflation? I mean, that's got to affect valuations, too. Yep. Yeah. 100%. Um, I, I agree with everything you said. Not, not really much to add there. So, uh, so Silver Chartist, I, I think I originally discovered you on Twitter. Didn't even know you had a uh, newsletter or anything like that at the time, because um, you were already providing quite a bit of value just through your Twitter account at that. And I think that remains the case today. But I, I want my listeners to know that there's, there's ways that they can get more out there, that there's more than just your Twitter account. Um, specifically your silver charters report, which I'm saying up front, you got a free version. So I wanted you to take some time to kind of talk about that. Sure. Th- thank you. Um, like you said, it's a free weekly letter. It goes out every Sunday. And but by the way, we, we put a, a link just for your listeners. Um, and thank you for the kind words. I've, I've been listening to your YouTube channel and your podcast for a long time. And when I saw you follow me on Twitter, I was like, oh, I'm going to reach out to Matt. And <laughs> it might, I could tell we would have a lot in common. Um, but back to the report. Yeah, we, we put a link together just for your listeners. So I would encourage you to check that out. At least go get the free version. We don't spam you or hit you with high pressure sales or anything like that. And it's uh, silverchartistfortune.com is that unique link. And if you, if you decide to, there's the opportunity to upgrade to a low ticket premium version. We keep it very inexpensive and we try and provide a ton of value at a, you know, a very low price. And that's where you get real-time alerts. You get an over-the-shoulder look at exactly what I'm buying, what I'm selling. Um, I do shorter-term trades. Um, I have an exit strategy. Um, all of that stuff is included in the premium membership, but, um, silverchartistfortune.com is the place to go for that. Yeah. Just to put it in my own words too, what, what I get from that, the value that I get from that is not just your main Twitter account. You have a second Twitter account for, for those that have that for, 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 uh, more updates on, on buy and sell signals, um, within the newsletter itself, you have a lot of information there, not just about stocks specifically, but how you weight those in your own, own portfolio, you discuss a lot about why some stocks are preferable than, than others. I, I would imagine that in many regards, a lot of those stocks and, and the broader part portfolio is going to differ from, you know, for, for example, if you just looked at the SILJ and, and its components or the SIL, GDX, et cetera. Um, and, and what I like maybe the most is that you have, it's, it's once a week, but I get updates regularly and, and, and a lot of them are 
pretty valuable in terms of, of key buy signals, sell signals, looking at moving averages, looking at charts. Um, what is it? I'll, I'll let you put in your own words. How do you, uh, how do you use technicals and, and fundamentals again to kind of figure out? Yeah, I, I was saying I like to say fundamentals tell me what to buy. The technicals tell me when to buy or when to sell. And, um, you know, we use technical, technical analysis to uh, identify low risk entry points and, you know, t- times to take some off the table, just like we did with uranium a couple months ago. You know, we took a little bit off the table because the technical technicals were getting stretched and uh, we do the opposite um, you know, when it's time to buy. Yeah. And I think that's, that's an important distinction for, for each of my listeners here that, that Steve's not somebody who is just looking at a chart and, and telling us when it, there's lots of people out there in the crypto space and the, in the stock market space, the precious metal space who look solely at charts and have no understanding or belief in the fundamentals of the assets they're talking about. And that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about somebody that believes in the fundamentals, believes in um, well, has a lack of belief in government and central banks and their ability to, to stave off inflation and, and just use this charts as, as a tool more than anything else. Absolutely. So, and, and Matt, if, if I can really quick, um, we didn't, you, 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 I don't think you plan to talk about your book, but I just want to say, I, I read your book. Um, I finished it about a month ago, so I don't remember all the, but I just remember, um, you know, I, I couldn't put it down. Um, I loved it. Zero sum. So I, I want to encourage you. I know you don't talk about it very often, but I would encourage everyone to go get your book. I mean, it's, it's really good. It's, uh, I just want to throw that in there. I appreciate that. I, I probably talk about it more than a lot of my listeners would like. Okay. <laughs> They've heard and they're like, I've read it or I, I, I'm not interested, but no, I appreciate that a lot. And, and uh, I'm looking forward to, I think earlier this week, I put out on my channel, uh, book two is coming out later uh, this yep. uh, in February, uh, middle of February. So something to look forward to. Yeah, um, I'm looking forward to it. Steve, is there anything else you want to, you want to leave us with uh, before we, before we part ways for the day? No, uh, no. Um, I, I think we covered a lot. Um, really appreciate you having me on and, you know, look forward to hopefully speaking again sometime soon. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's been Steve Penny of the Silver Chartist Report. Um, Steve, thanks for coming on today. You bet. Thank you. All right, thank you. All right. Awesome.